This is the BBC Home Service for mothers and children at home. Are you sitting comfortably? Then we'll begin. Hey kids, come last week the beginning of new shows this is a new show you've not missed like an entire email section should I just shut up and get on with it it might help yes okay uh, this is Hey Kids Comics and we're back for another episode I am Andrew Leyland I'm Michael Lowe and today as we record this it is actually happy birthday Superman is it yes it is actually his 75th birthday today if we put any preparation or planning whatsoever into our shows yes we would have made today's episode that went up today which would have made no difference in the recording, the last happy birthday super. But we did not plan that far ahead. But we did not plan that far ahead. And we're incompetent. I think this is well known. We are competent. Yes, this I think is I'm true. So, we are going to mark this passing, even though it will be two weeks hence from the point that we're recording this, mm-hmm. with uh, a look at comicbookresources.com's Comics Should Be Good. Top 75 Superman stories, as voted for by us, apparently. Us, yes. Yes, us. Not me. Just us. Just us. Yeah. Justice. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Anyway, that was quite late. Coming in. Just us. Just us. Just this. Just us. No, he said just us. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Ties into today's episode. Yeah. Well done. So at number 75 with a bullet, the Supergirl from Krypton. Not the original, but the remake from Batman Superman 8 through 12. It's It's not a Superman story. It's a Supergirl story. It's not a Superman story, though. Superman features heavily in it. But anyway, th- did we enjoy that? I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I thought Scoop- Supergirl could have been drawn to be slightly less skinny. Maybe. Yeah. But, but maybe. She had a very long And maybe wore so. some clothes. And maybe put some clothes on. When you look over that. Yeah. Uh, number 74, 22 stories in a single bound from Super Adventures 41. I approve wholeheartedly of that pick. I've never read it. That was on the short list for um, the 90s or the 2000s and I decided against it I can't remember why I decided against it but I did it was on the list though Mm -hmm. Phantom Zone the final chapter from DC Comics Presents 97 Uh, yeah it's a good issue I enjoy that one I like that one I don't think you've ever read it have you by Steve Gerby who created uh, Gerber sorry Howard the Duck ah the mightiest team in the world um, from Superman 76 which we covered so, yeah, we, we talked about the Mighty Team on Earth. I didn't recognise that. Or in the world. Uh, the Cosmos Quaking Origins of the New Lutheran Brainiac. I don't think that was the title from Action Comics 544, but we also covered that. Mm-hmm. So we have no need to discuss it again. Commandy, The Last Boy on Earth, issue 29. I've never read that. It looks like a Superman story. The ca- the yeah, there's the a Superman the costume front. on the... I believe Commandy finds Superman's costume in okay. the Commandy strip, but I've never read Commandy. 
I do mean to. Mm-hmm. It is on my list of things to read. The Miraculous Return of Jonathan Kent from Action Comics 507 and 508, which was also on the list for the 80s ones, but, but I knocked cover, it on the head because we felt we were giving too much preferential treatment to the first half of the decade, not the second half of the decade. Okay. So that is a very good story. I like that story a great deal. It's reprinted in one of the Superman in the 80s book, I think. One of. That's <laughs> the only one. Uh, Speeding Bullets, which was an Elsewood tale, which I remember quite enjoying by James DeMatteis and Edward, uh, Eduardo Barreto, but I haven't read it since it came out. So, How Superman Would End the War from Look Magazine in 1940. Again, a contender for this very show. I considered it, but it was only why a page. Is, why is he wearing hot pants? <laughs> I don't. It does look like he's wearing hot pants. Because it's from a magazine, not a comic, so they've presumably coloured it wrong. Because they've, they've coloured his legs fleshy. Yeah. So he does just look like he's wearing Supergirl's hot pants. That would probably make him squeak. The girl in Superman's past, which we also covered, but we covered the remake, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. Absolute power from Superman Batman 14 through 18. I thought it was one of the weaker Jeff Loeb stories in the I've Superman Batman run. It's on the bookshelf. Absolute power. Absolute power, if you wish to read it. Oh, where's that one come from? Uh Nothing gets past you, you said this very morning. (laughs) Uh, The Living Legend of Superman for Superman 400. I think we gushed enough about that one. Yeah. Even you like that one. The Team of Lutheran Brainiac from Superman 167. It was a possibility, but I decided against it. The Last Days of Superman was an excellent story. Yeah, wholeheartedly approve of that one. Emperor Joker, yes, I thoroughly enjoyed that one. Uh, number 60, The Battle with Bizarro from Action Comics 254. Superman Earth 1, Well, at number 59. It is 59, so it's not like it's one it's of the a, better ones. Right. It's a Bird, It's a Plane. No, it's not. It's just called It's a Bird by Steven Seagal and Teddy Christiansen. Never read it. Steven Seagal. Yeah, it's a, it's a Vertigo book, so I've never read it. A Superman Vertigo book. Camelot Falls, which I remember not liking, but it's on this list. Okay. So maybe it was better than I recall. You know. The origin of Superman from Superman 53. You can't go wrong with an origin of Superman from the Silver and the Golden Age, I don't think. The Crisis on the Crimson Kryptonite, again, was shortlisted okay. for this very show. Very good story. Superman Returns to Krypton, excellent. Yeah, approved wholeheartedly. Superman The Wedding Album, number one. I considered that, but I think it's too rushed. Yeah. But... You know, I can understand why it's... It's an important story, I wouldn't say best. Oh, it is only 53. Number 52, if Superman didn't exist, I did consider that for the Marvel and Gil Kane stuff. I went for Action Comics 544 instead. Okay. But it is a good one. I like that one a great deal. The Einstein Connection from Superman 416, which I don't think I've ever read. That looks like uh, Al Williamson artwork, though. Yes. Al Williamson, yeah, there you go. Well, I may have to find that one if it's, it's on one of the best stories ever made. Number 60, World's Finest 1 through 3. Excellent artwork not by so Steve Rude. It's, um, it's not bad. It's just not great. The Legion of Supervillains is at number 49, which I think I've read. Superman Takes a Wife. I think we said enough about that one as well. We picked that one. The Mysterious Mr. Mixius Pitlick from Superman number 30. I didn't consider any Mixius Pitlick stories. <laughs> it's not that I don't like him. I just I think they're all a bit samey. Yeah. For, there's a certain point where you've read one Mr. Mitchell's Pitlick story. You've read them all. Aha, Superman, I've caused to create mayhem. I'll make you say your name backwards. Oh, oh Calypso. No. Or whatever it was. Panic in the Sky. Uh, heartily approve of that. From 1993, crossed over in all the books. Very good story. The showdown between Luther and Superman is at number 45. We also covered that. Mm-hmm. The Jungle Line is at number 44. DC Comics Friends 85. My personal favourite like of the Alan Moore Superman stories. 
but uh, no one can write his characters. No, no, no. Number 43, the Supergirl Saga from Superman Volume 2, 21 22, and Adventures 444. Very good. I think there's a bit of a difference between I Will Never Kill and I Will Never Kill Again. <laughs> but having said that, you know, very good story. The Phantom Zone 1 through 4. I quite enjoyed that. It's gets Gene Colon artwork, isn't it? Mm. Yes, it says down here, Gene Cole. Very good. Time and time again. Uh, yes, very good. I enjoyed time and time again. Superman and the Fiend from Dimension 5 from Action Comics 1 through 18. Uh, no. 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 And thrice no. I thought that was pretty. That shouldn't be on this list. Uh-huh. No. Well, it's far too recent for a start. Yeah. No. It's not one of the best Superman stories ever told. It's not one of the best stories. There you go. It's crap. Number 39, Superman Last Son. I need to reread that because I have foul memories of it. I enjoyed it. Because of its constant lateness and the 3D. I I hate 3D. Well... But does it stand up? Yeah. Alright. When when you can contextualise the 3D. Can I read it without the 3D? If you buy a (laughs) non-3D issue. Do we have a non-3D issue? I'm not sure, actually. I'd like to read it without the 3D, please. Uh, Exile, yes. Exile was awesome. Loved it a lot. Dark Knight of Metropolis. We we, we did that one. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's one of the best Superman stories. We no. covered it because of the Superman-Batman relationship. I don't think it's yeah. one of the best. Uh, Infinite Crisis 1 through 7. Um, really? Is that a Superman story? It focuses on him, I guess. All right, okay. More so than Crisis on Infinite Earth, then. Yeah. Which isn't a Superman story. Essentially, Infinite Crisis proof that everything comes back to Superman. That's fair enough. I can live with that. Public Enemies, Superman, Batman 1 through 6. Yeah, I like that one. Jeff Loeb and Ed McGuinness. Oh, once again, it's not a Superman story. Is it not? If it's Superman and Batman, I don't think it counts as a Superman story. And it's more of a Lex Luthor story, isn't it? I guess, yeah. Okay. The Supergirl from Krypton. Yes. Heartily either. That should be higher than that. Once again, it isn't a Superman story. It's not a Superman story, no. Superman Batman Generations 1 through 4. Yes. The first Generations mini is excellent. Should be much higher up than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say... Uh, well, well, we can reenact a conversation that happened before we started the show. I said to Michael, I bet you £10 I know what's number one. Yes. And uh, I said, if that is what's number one, that's incredibly predictable. Yes. I'm going to pretend now I don't know what number one is because I did look at it, didn't I? Yeah. But, but we had that conversation before I looked at it. We did. Oh, no! Number 32, Superman's Secret Origin 1 through 6. No. Oh. No, no, no. What's Lex doing on that cover? I don't know. He looks like he's gritting his teeth, but he doesn't have any bottom-layered teeth. No. Or he's no. no. The art's nice. No, it's not. If you like Superman to look like Christopher Reeve all the time. Oh, the art's nice if you don't like art. <laughs> Alright, fair enough. Tell it like it T.I. is. No, I'm not having that. I reckon no, Jeff Johns sorry. had a word with it in this. You think? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Kryptonite Nevermore. Yes, I'll go with Kryptonite Nevermore. Apart from the Deus Ex ending. Yeah. Which is, it's the ending of the last Twilight movie. If you've seen the last Twilight movie, is it Breaking Dawn Part no 2? Idea. Is that the last Twilight movie? The end of that story is the end of Breaking Dawn Part 2. Okay. Trust me. Good, though, but... Yeah. What, Breaking Dawn? I didn't mind Breaking Dawn. Michael Michael Sheen's in it, so he's always good value. Number 30, The Amazing Story of Superman Red and Superman Blue. I, I like it. It's Silver Age Silliness. Yeah. But I do like it. It is fun, Silver Age Silliness. Because Superman uh, Red and Superman Blue swap places one night and go on with each other's wives. That was a really funny bit. <laughs> Did they actually? That does not happen, no. All right. <laughs> 
Well, we're just fighting. <laughs> Number 29, The Secret Reveal from Superman Issue 2 from 1986. Again, it's a Lex Luthor story. Yeah. Rather than a Superman story. It's a good one. See, I suppose they should have clarified that. Just because Superman's in it... Does that make it a Does Superman? it make it a Superman story? We've had plenty of Superman-Batman stories. Yeah, it? that's true. Uh, up, up and Away is at number 28. I enjoyed reading that when it came out. I have not read it since, so I would have to revisit it. But I did re- I did like it at the time. Number 27, Superman vs. The Amazing Spider-Man. Oh, yes. But I still prefer the second one. Yeah. But I can live with that being there, because it's awesome. Superman, Peace on Earth is at number 26 by Alex Ross and Paul Dini. Which... Yes. It's good. Yeah, I like that one. Number 25, Return to Krypton. Have they already had that one? No. Was that a different Superman's Return to Krypton? Probably, yeah. Right. Was that the one with Lyra Leroll? I've no idea. For yes, a, for Lyra Leroll's the actress. Yeah. For a planet that blew up, he does keep going back there a lot. Yeah, and getting off with all the, the hot women. Yeah. Number 24, Of the I Sing from Hitman 34. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're down with that. I know it should be higher. But that's just me. It's not written by Alan Moore. If the so. top ten of this is just Grant Morrison and Alan Moore, <laughs> I'm going to write to comics should be good and say, yes, comics should be good. You do know there's more than two writers working the comic book medium, right? Oh, yeah, Jeff Jobs. Oh, <laughs> God. How stupid of me. You're absolutely right. Number 23, Superman Wrestles an Angel from JLA 6 through 7. Not, is that actually what it's called? Yes, that's the title of the issue. Apparently. Uh, yeah. I don't remember it be calling that, but okay. Alright. Must There Be a Superman, is it number 22? Yes, I can I can see why that's the... DC 1 million, 1 through 4 at 21, is that a Superman story? Like Infinite Crisis, it uh, does come down okay. to Superman. Yeah. Funeral for a Friend, at number 20. Yeah, I can go with Funeral for a Friend. Your, your least favourite part of the death of Superman. Yeah. My favourite part of the death of Superman. Alright, fair enough. Uh, number 19, Brainiac by Jeff Johns oh, and yeah, Gary Frank. It's good, but Jeff Johns really shouldn't be uh, <laughs> Should he bribing not? comic book resources <laughs> to put it higher in the list. Um, I've read it, I remember nothing about it. Essentially, I need to read it again. Brainiac shows up, but he's at, this is actually the real Brainiac. Every other one's have just been an elaborate ruse. Oh, right. <laughs> and, uh, okay. Yeah, and Superman and Brainiac just fight a lot. Right. Okay, right. I'll, I'll read it again and see what I think of it. Uh, Superman's Race with the Flash from Superman 199. I always like Flash Superman races. Mm. They're always good value. Um, Superman and the Legion of Superheroes is at number 17, also by Jeff Johns and Gary Frank. Who have they got pictures of? I didn't like that. Did you not? No, I thought that sucked. I tried to like it. And there were bits of it that I did enjoy, but mm. overall I didn't think it was all that great. I, I really didn't like it at all when I read it. Again, I've only read it once. Mm. So maybe if I read it in conjunction with Brainiac, I'd yeah. like it more. It's a Legion story, though. But I remember thinking, I, I don't... Why is this so highly rated? Because mm. it's Jeff Johns. Yeah, fair enough. Number 16, Superman vs. Muhammad Ali. Oh, I am so torn on this one. <laughs> on the one hand, it is awesome. Mm. It's a fantastic book. On the other, the story's not actually that good. No. But it's uh, yeah, all right. I can I can see why it's the it is jolly good fun, but the story's a bit lame to be honest. Number fifteen, Final Crisis one through seven, and Superman Beyond one and two. Um, again, is that a Superman story? Final Crisis. Well, once again, it comes down to Superman, but for a different reason. All right, fair enough. Number fourteen, Reign of the Superman. 
Yeah, I can go Which with that. the best one yeah. of that trilogy. All right, if you say so. Number 13, Superman Birthright. <laughs> I don't mind it being higher than Secret Origin. Can you say bad things about Mark Wade? Can you bring yourself to say bad things I'm about Mark I'm not going to say bad things about Mark Wade. Superman Birthright is a jolly good read. But there are enough things with it that make me go, hmm, like Superman's a vegetarian because he can't bring himself to kill any kind of life. And there's just little things all the way through it. kind of see where he's coming from. Yeah, and he can see people's auras. And what it... Because there's a character who dies and he sees the aura just disappear. Right. And there's, there's bits of that that were problematic. I didn't not like it. I don't... I don't know that I would put it in my top 75 Superman stories. To be honest with you. And I'm not really that big a fan of Lenny Hill Francis Yu, although I know you like him. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Number 12, The Death of Superman, the 90s one. Again. It's good. Yeah. But I think Reign of Superman's better. Yeah, but you don't get the Reign without the death. Well, no, that's true, but Reign's still better. Yeah, well, so Reign should be higher, is what you're saying. Yeah. You have no problem with death being, though, because essentially it's all one story. Mm. All right, fair dues. I can go with that. Number 11, Crisis on Infinite Earths 1 through 12. Is that a Superman story? I suppose it's a Superman story in the same way Final Crisis is a Superman story. Yes. Okay, fair enough. Uh, number 10, The Death of Superman from 1961. Yes, that deserves to be there. Because it's excellent. And we covered it. Mm-hmm. Number 9, Secret Identity 1 through 4 by Kurt Busiek and Stuart Immerman. I have never read it. I have also never read it. So we have no comment on Although that Although I have read on this same very website that we're on right now that it's not actually all that great. But they've picked it as one of the... Or have we picked it? Or may, well, yeah, we, we, yeah, we, us. Yeah, us, 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 us. Uh, number 8, what's so funny about Truth, Justice and the American Way? The fact that this issue is this hype on the list is what's it, funny. <laughs> yeah, I'm, we've talked about it enough. It's a good idea, and it's a valid question to ask, especially at the time that they asked it with the deconstruction of superheroes and all that stuff. I felt it could be handled a lot better. Mm. And the film did. This is the first time I've seen that cover properly, and it looked pretty lame. It's crap. Yeah. Uh, Number seven, Superman for All Seasons. Why is that not number one? (laughs) Is all I have to say about that. Because Jeff Jones is bribing them. Yeah. Uh, Number six, Superman Red Sun. Yeah, all right, I'll go with that. I like Superman Red Sun a great deal. Number six. No, number five, sorry. Man of Steel, one through six. Um, See, I'm torn here. Yes, that's my Superman. Mm -hmm. I don't think that series has aged well. I reread all six issues for part of the Superman coverage. Obviously, I never used them. Yeah. But I read an awful lot of stuff for the Superman coverage that we didn't use, but it came in useful to be able to talk about stuff. I don't think Man of Steel's aged very well. And as I've gotten older, there are more and more things about it that are problematic to me. Superman playing football yeah. is is a bit silly, and it's it's arguably quite dated now. Well, a lot of the burn stuff we read was quite dated. But it's weird to me in that some of the 40s and 50s stuff isn't as dated now as Man of Steel. It's very strange. It's very hard to explain. Well, no, this is the thing with some of the 40s stuff weren't trying to go out of the way to ground it in the present day. Yeah, so there is an element of certain fashion things you can kind of overlook yeah. in the 50s and 40s stuff. That's because everyone's wearing a suit in yeah. the 50s and 40s. Well, they all wearing in the 80s. Yeah, whereas, yeah, so it looks a bit dated. I mean, the art's still lovely. He still draws a, the best Superman flying yeah. of anybody. And there are elements of it I really do like. Issue number two, 
I thought was really good. Uh, the Story of the Century, I think it was called. I can't remember anything of Man of Steel. Um, I know I've read it. Yeah, you've read it a couple of times. Because you made me read it. Yeah. No. Um, and I liked issue six. I didn't mind issue five with Bizarro. I didn't mm. mind the Batman issue. That was okay. What was issue four? I have no idea. I forget. Anyway, yeah, mm, yeah I'm torn on that one. My... It, may, it would probably, on my top 75, it wouldn't be in the top 10, I don't think. Mm. Kingdom Come is at number four. Again, I would argue it's not a Superman story. But Superman is the main He's the driving character, character, though, isn't he? Yeah, all right. Yeah, okay, I'll take that back. We'll go with Kingdom Come. Number three, All-Star Superman. I'm not surprised no, that this is here. I think it should be in the top five. Arguably. Well, it'll be in my top ten. Possibly not my top five. Mm. But I can understand how your generation would put it higher. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, I'm down with that. Because that's my yeah, Superman. Yeah, and I, I said when we covered issue four or six or whatever the hell one we covered. Mm. I can't remember which one it was now. The Jimmy Olsen war, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I remember saying, um, listeners beware, I'm about to say something nice about Grant Morrison. Mm. To me, that's his best work on standard superheroes. Yeah. It's 12 issues, self-contained, it tells its story, gets the hell out of Dodge. Mm-hmm. It all makes sense, crucially. Yes. Yeah. But it's a shame that that was so good, because Action Comics was utterly crap. I think he said everything he needed to say about Superman exactly. and All-Star Superman. So he was trying to write a story that he didn't need or want to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number two, I'm shocked by this, I tell you. Shocked! <laughs> for the man who has everything for Superman Annual 11, I'm not saying it's not good. I am merely saying something I've said many, many, many times before. Yes, I know Watchmen is a masterpiece. Can we please call time on it now being in the top ten best graphic novels of all time? I think Alan Moore has had more than his, his fair share of kudos. Let's give some other people a chance. Mm-hmm. Okay. At writing his and at number one, Kel Surprise. Should we have a drum roll? Just go on then. <laughs> Whatever happened to The Man of Tomorrow from Superman 43 and Action Comics 583? Again, it is good. Uh, but again, as we've two said... two stories as, as one, one and, and two. two. But as we've said before... I could probably write a fantastic last Superman story because you've just got to go in, you can do what you want, you can kill off whoever yeah, you want you to. Yeah, mess about because it's the last one. Yeah, anybody can write a fantastic final story. Mm. So the fact that Alan Moore wrote that one does not make it not good, because it is. Yeah. But again... Anyone could have written it and had the same effect. Yeah, I, I, I would put my Watchmen thing in there. Well, yes, Watchmen's great. Can we ban it from being in the top ten best of all time, please? No. And ban it? Yeah, completely. <laughs> just accept that Watchmen's going to be in there and have something else. You just pretend it's in there. Yeah, just pretend it's in there. We'll move on. And speaking of moving on, that was them. So let us have a look at emails this week. Our first one from Mr. Rob Stubbs. And he's emailed us in about a non-Superman episode. So that's nice. Hi, Rob. I didn't. What did you think of the, those 75? Because I presume you've not read half of them. No. So you didn't really have an opinion. I'd read most of them. The ones that I had read were on the show, and the ones that I hadn't read for the show were the ones that weren't really Superman stories. Uh, okay, fair enough. Uh, sorry about that, Rob. We, we started your email and then stopped. Hello, Andrew and Michael, my lovely British Tomodachis. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I was going to send you a lovely postcard from my trip to sunny Latveria, but thanks to this nice old lady who told me to call her Fred and her robot dog, I escaped Latveria before buying such a postcard. She dropped me off at my house and mentioned something about visiting Russia. (laughs) 
I'm all for a rebooted Airwolf Knight Rider Magnum PI series where Thomas Magnum is hired by military intelligence to hunt down and capture Stringfellow Hawk to get back the stolen Airwolf chopper. Each episode concludes with a narrow escape by Stringfellow from Magnum in his kit car. <laughs> That's why it's, it's kits, as in the Night Rider car, not a kit car, which is a different thing. I will start with the end first, as clearly what Batman did is send the nuclear baseball to his good friend Clark Kent with a note saying, "I heard you like baseball." <laughs> followed by a muffled boom, followed by Clark going, "Very funny, Bruce." Golly, <laughs> golly. <laughs> as to the KG beast, what clearly happened there is due to drinking lots of vodka when he was telling his new commanders something they thought he was saying, call me KG beast, when what he was trying to say was, I've worked with the KGB East. <laughs> Sadly, this name stuck with him due to the Soviet bureaucratic departments. <laughs> That works. Yeah. I like that. That's funny. As for Romana Navratna Lunda, clearly a bad regeneration has happened and she's completely forgotten she's a time lady. Or she's one of those special watches like the Master and the Doctor did. The Doctor would save her, but the last time he went to Gotham, some dude stole his TARDIS. He's much too scared to go there again. Daleks are less scary than those hard Gotham streets at night at 2am. If memory serves, the last time the Doctor landed in an American city uh, in the early hours of the morning, he got machine gunned to death. So it's understandable why you would not want to go back. Well, the last time we went to um, America was when the Daleks were there. No, when he, he last got there and it was early morning and he landed oh. the TARDIS in an alleyway, he was Sylvester McCoy. He stepped out of the TARDIS and we're, was machine gunned by a mugger. specific era, are we? Yes. Well, that's, it's an alleyway is where I was going with that. Yeah, can you say? Okay. Wait, Batman has a sense of humour again? And is actually capable of not being a complete control freak all of the time? I'm shocked by this. The all-knowing, all-seeing, I'm 29 moves ahead of you, Batman, isn't in place. Uh, no, he'd stepped back a bit. I like the implication of violence and bloodshed that doesn't have to actually be shown, but is clearly implied. We don't need three panels of brain matter spatter on a wall when you can show a shot that implies the same thing without showing the brain matter spatter. I agree. Okay. We don't need to see it. Or something like Spartacus, it's fun. <laughs> but in, in, a, in a Batman comic, we don't necessarily need to see it. Damn you, Owlman. You snuck in and replaced my cape again when I wasn't looking. While I was off, I learned to combine my martial arts with soothing ballet movement, is what I say to some of the art. I am Batman, master of ballet. <laughs> Batley! <laughs> That's even funnier. <laughs> I said that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> See, what he gets is he gets Final Crisis Superman who sings and Batman does Batley. And Batman does Batley to Superman singing. To the super song. Oh, God. And and then they tour and make a lot of money. And they do. My favourite Robin is Tim Drake, continues Rob, as he doesn't have the murdered parents yet, like Mm. Dick Grayson, and didn't start off of a sort of inferior Dick Grayson copy like Jason Todd did before his past was changed. I'm glad Tim Drake at least considered using the gun, as that's what a sane and rational person would consider. Too often creators allow their personal belief structure to dictate what characters do. Guns are bad, therefore none of my characters would ever consider using a gun, even if it could stop a guy from detonating a nuclear explosive device. I'm fine with Batman not using guns because he saw a criminal shoot his parents with a gun, so that makes some sense. But when it cripples every other character in the process, it goes too far. Well, I think we said that in the coverage, didn't we? It yeah. would make sense that in that situation where Robin is completely outclassed, mm-hmm. he would consider using the gun. Yeah. Cause just because Batman is against them, Robin Doesn't isn't. mean that Robin would be. Who's your favourite Robin? Tim Drake. Dick Grayson. Original. Tim Dra- See, the thing with Dick Grayson is I like Dick Grayson as Nightwing. I like him as grown-up Robin. Yeah. So, from the Teen Titans. But Tim Drake actually got to be Robin for some length of time. Dick Grayson was always good at being Robin. 
we never saw him learn how to yeah. do it, did we? He was always brilliant. Yeah. And like when you're 12, you don't want to see somebody who's 12 who's already brilliant. Because <laughs> you want to labour under this misconception that at some point I could grow up to be Batman. Yeah. But he's already better than me. <laughs> so, bugger off. So at least Tim Drake was crap for a bit and yeah. then got better as he went along. Uh, well, if they wipe out Gotham, continues Rob, they wipe out a major mover of illegal goods, which does real damage to the criminal underground. So technically speaking, that would destroy America. If you think of all of this as some sort of criminal enterprise. I wonder if the nuke ball had went off, they would erect statues to the Troika people for all the crimes they'd help get rid of. <laughs> if they just nuked Gotham, yeah. they would have... Because, like, with No Man's Land, they'd just cut it off. Well, there's our chance to get rid of it. <laughs> That's about it from me. I'm going to recommend watching some episodes of Batman the Brave and the Bold if you can find them. There's a lovely The Superman Batman of Planet X, which I thought was dumb. <laughs> Sorry, editorialising. With voice acting by Clancy Brown, Dana Delaney and Kevin Conroy. There's The Spooky Chill of the Night, with the spectre, which I quite liked, because it's an adaptation of the 1940s Batman origin. Uh, there's Duel of the Double Crossers with Batman and Jonah Hex, which I've not seen. I may check that one out with Jonah Hex. There's a rivalry episode, The Day of the Dark Knight, which is fun. And there's the musical episode, Mayhem of the yeah. Music Mice. I saw that one. Yeah. I quite like that one. I thought it was quite funny. You know... Uh, R.L. Stubbs Jr. You know Thank what? you, Rob. An episode of Brave and the Bull that could have actually been really good. What? Really, what? really good. Was when they did a two-part one. Yeah. Which was essentially Final Crisis. Did they? And that could have been really good because it was all about Dark Side coming in. Everyone was terror. I say everyone. I mean, it was Batman and um, the Bwahaha Justice League. And they were all really, really terrified. Um, but then Darkseid shows up, he's like, I'm Darkseid, and then Batman and the Boha Justice League go, oh no, let's fight y'all bad guys, and then they save the day. Right. Darkseid versus the Boha Justice League and Batman. Yeah. And Darkseid doesn't win. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Our next email. Some say that he bailed us out last week when we couldn't find a comic that we needed to cover on the show. Mm -hmm. And that he is forever in our gratitude for that. That made no sense, but make it make sense in English. All we know is he's called Luke Giaconetti. No more superheroes. Number one! I do like that. Number. Number. Number one. Andrew Leyland. The stories say he once shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. I totally did. <laughs> I totally did that. Well, I shot a man in Reno for completely over it. <laughs> Michael Leyland, rumours are that he stalks the streets at night searching for criminals and the ghosts of Bob Marley. <laughs> is that true? It is true. <laughs> I want to tell him I'm not actually a fan of his music. <laughs> These men are not heroes. They are not to be trifled with, mocked or disrespected. No, they are podcasters. Dun, dun, dun! Loud noises are dramatic. This is all in the email, by the way. I'm not making this up. Yeah, again, again, I love repetition. <laughs> Anyway, great idea for a series of shows. Thank you very much. Which ones is he talking about? <laughs> no more superheroes. Yeah. You guys know that I'm a big fan of genre books. I like the long underwear crowd as much as the next guy, but genre books are always a treat. So hearing you guys talk about non-superhero books is a blast. Well, you'd only heard the first one, so I hope yep. we carried on on that upward trajectory. And then Michael picks a superhero book. Oh, well. It wasn't about superhero, though. That's my... Uh... Is that your get-out plot? That's my get-out, yeah. Now then, Battlestar Galactica. I've never read the comic series beyond the movie adaptation, which I have the mass market paperback version of. I like that adaptation, but I am a fan of the original movie and the series, much more so than the technically superior but ultimately less enjoyable remake. Oh, see, I disagree with that. Mm. I think the original's fault and all, but I think the, the remake is one of the best science fiction shows to ever air on television. Mm -hmm. But I know. But that's just me. Yeah. 
I have heard a lot of mixed opinions on the Marvel Battlestar series, from popcorn-munching enthusiasm to venomous bile and everything in between. As I tend to lean in the same direction as Andy, I think I'm going to have to check out this series at some point. I don't know if Battlestar Galactica was in pre-production before Star Wars or not. As Andy and I have discussed off before, it really is just a transplanted western put into space, so I don't know that I put much stock in Larson's claims. I will say that two films often cited as Star Wars rip-offs actually were in pre-production before Star Wars, The Black Hole and Star Trek The Motion Picture. I don't know why Star Trek The Motion Picture is considered a rip-off of Star Wars, given that it's completely different. I didn't know it was. So if it's set in space... At that time, it was considered a rip-off of Star Wars, yeah. The Black Hole, I can kind of see, because it's got a cute robot in it. Right. Because, obviously, Lucas was the first one to do cute robots, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah. Huey, Dewey and Louie from Silent Running, Robbie the Robot, the robot from Lost in Space. None of those count. No, no. Lucas was the first. Yes. And if you uh, disagree with that, he'll recreate Life on Earth as the special edition, and you won't be in it. Yeah, he'll so he'll me be out. replaced by an annoying uh, CGI <laughs> Jar Jar yeah, An annoying bumper. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want Jar Jar Binks, my dad. Don't speak against Lucas. Yeah, hey, Mr. Michael. <laughs> I have never read Invincible, Luke continues, but this story sounded like fun. Made me think of some other grin-inducing science fiction characters we've gotten lately, including two over at DC. The fun-loving triple magnet Tanga by Kevin Maguire and the muck monster Garbage Man by Aaron Lepresti. Both were featured in the miniseries Weird Worlds and My Greatest Adventure, along with Lobo and Robot Man, respectively. Maybe not as violent as this issue ends up, but both very strong in their own way. Can't wait to hear more of this series of genre books. Keep it up, dudes, and I can't wait to hear some war comics. Well, I hope you enjoy having heard them now, yeah. which you have, because mm-hmm. wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Our next email is from Mr. Bobby Coakley. Hi, Bobby. Hello there. Thatcher, Superhero Muse is the title. Dear Leylands, dear Bobby. Mm-hmm. Or dear Coakley. Yeah, well, yeah, I suppose that works as well. Margaret Thatcher is dead, and I wonder about her influence on comic books from the 1980s onwards. How intense dislike of Thatcher influenced darker, bitter comic books, and how those dark comics created a dark, grim and gritty age. Just read 2000 AD. Yeah. Um, Planetary 7 by Warren Ellis said England was a scary place in the 80s. Oh, I've only read up to number 6, dude. <laughs> we Spoilers. Number six. And created a scurry culture while showing copyright-friendly expos of various Vertigo-era characters. That seems to be planetary shit. I think that might be the future. Funeral was it? Yeah, I've not read that. Well, they just go to a funeral. Every single person there is an analog of someone. Well, we've had numerous analogs in that Mm. thus far, as we will be discussing later. Spider Spider Jerusalem's there. Is he? I think so. Okay. Um, Well, I think you're going to get that because the creative community tend to be. Well, I was going to say left leaning, but Mm. you know, by and large, though, we're not a political podcast. We're not. So we are making no comments. When we do become a political podcast, it gets cut. Yeah. It does indeed. No, there's a reason for this, right? I happen to know. Yes. This is a fact. Okay. There are it's two people who listen to this show. Only I think we have more than two people. <laughs> yes, we have double that. <laughs> but there are specifically two people. I'm not going to mention their names. Okay. But there are two people that, based upon their Facebook postings, politically opposite in every single <laughs> conceivable <laughs> way. I think you know who I'm talking about. I do, yeah. Okay. But... Yeah. And here's the crucial thing. They both listen to this show. Right. So we, in some small way, have brought these two politically opponents, political opponents, together. Yeah. And we do not wish to jeopardise that beautiful relationship... <laughs> by uh, speaking... By, by, by speaking out on something that we may or may not believe in. Yeah. We have our opinions, <laughs> but our opinions are purely kept for BBC News in the morning, <laughs> where I sit there spewing bile at... Various news <laughs> reports. 
which could be left or right. Yes. It, it, I really have no preference. I'm very neutral in this particular matter. Uh, in an earlier podcast, you mentioned driving around in a car called the Winston Churchill and solving <laughs> mysteries. No, we were the Dukes, dude. It wasn't so much mysteries as we were against the system of corrupt sheriffs. Fight the power. Fight the powers that be, yeah. If the two of you drove around in a car called the Margaret Thatcher, what kind of car or truck or steamroller would it be? Um, I, 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 I'm going to say a combine harvester. Because I like the idea of riding around in a combine harvester. Keep up the good work, Bobby C. Well, we will try to do that, and I hope we were sufficiently vague in our responses to that shit. Uh, why I love podcasters, our next email is from Brad James. Hello, Brad. It is lovely to hear from you. Sup, Leylands. Action Comics 775 is a much-beloved story by many Superman fans, myself included. Oh, we're going to get berated. Which was 775? What's so funny? Ah, right. I was shocked to hear that both of you were less than enthused with the story, but as I listened, I found myself actually agreeing with most everything you were saying. It is wonderful to get a different viewpoint from things that I love. As long as said point of view is well thought out, and yours was definitely that. Oh, thank you very much. I thought we were going to get berated then for not liking it. But um, we appreciate the fact you were open-minded enough to listen to two northern chances mm-hmm. talk about something you enjoy and not enjoy it as much, but it, we're still friends. And it's not every day you uh, get praised for being critical about something that the person praising you likes. Oh, yeah, as a rule, it normally ends. You suck. <laughs> no, you suck. Your opinion's different to mine, you idiot. Yeah, you doofus. <laughs> Why'd you like that? Yeah, but, but but no, see, this is why the show, the show is good. Yes. It, it explores all of Bringing these Bringing opposites together. Yeah. Well, we're not opposites, really. No, he liked no. it, we didn't. We made him see some points of view that he hadn't previously considered. Mm-hmm. It's always a good thing. Yeah. I hope he still likes the story. Mm-hmm. I hate it when people do that to me. When they, someone ruins it for you. Yeah, when somebody talks about something that I like, and then they just puncture little holes in it, and then I go, damn you! But anyway, we will continue with Brad's email. Uh, the two things that stand out to me about the story and help make it great. Number one, it is terrifying to see Superman lose it. I'm sure any normal citizen watching the final encounter on TV or whatever would be terrified. I can picture the JLA and the satellite watching and thinking to themselves they have to figure out a way to stop Superman if he continues on this rampage. To find out it is all a ruse is a relief both to the reader and to every citizen on the planet. The speech. This is maybe where the cultural divide comes to play, or maybe it's just my own naive belief system. Dreams save us. To me, this is what Superman is. He fights to keep the American dream alive, not just in America, but the world over. He does the right thing because it's the right thing to do. I think we all dream of a world where everybody follows Superman's example. Yeah, see, we didn't have any problem with the ending per se. Mm. I just... I I don't think they did a good enough job setting that ending up. I don't have any problem with Superman being truth, justice, the American way, and all of that. I have no problem with that at all. Yeah. I didn't think that story particularly handled it well. I think there are other stories that have done it much better. That, and I don't think the ending makes much sense, but you overlook that because you focus on the Superman speech. I, yeah. I didn't exactly kill your teammates, but we, we saw you... Listen to my speech. I didn't kill your teammates. <laughs> Actually, they're <a> dead. Yeah. <laughs> I see them just hanging behind yeah, They're just hanging around in space and everything going... <laughs> That would be funny. But no, please, listen to my speech. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Anyway, thanks again for presenting a different look at this beloved story and all the stories you've covered in this beautiful tribute to the world's first and greatest superhero. Well, you're very welcome. Keep up the great podcast, you wankers, Brad Janes. I don't know how to take that. I'll take it as a compliment. I'm certainly not disagreeing. (laughs) 
P.S. I'll have to watch the movie again when I get home, but I'm pretty sure Superman reveals that he just gave Manchester a concussion and didn't actually lobotomise him. I totally agree that the movie does the story better and Superman's crazy eyes terrify me. Um, I'm sh- I was positive they didn't actually mention what he did. Mm. I could be wrong. So if you watch it again, let us know, because I don't think I can be bothered watching it again. And finally, our final email tonight, Non-Superhero Comics. Excellent is the title. It is from Christopher Warden. Hello, Chris. Hello, my fellow battle brothers in the trenches of comic book fandom. That's a good intro. It is. I like that. And I do like fighting in trenches of comic books. <laughs> the trenches made of comics. Yeah. So if you get bored, you can just lie down and read one. Yeah. Oh, okay, fair enough. Hope to find that everyone is well rested and recovered. I was surprised to hear my name mentioned two shows in a row. Well, three now. Yeah. Thanks. Michael, your dad is correct. I listen to each episode at least twice. My job as a truck driver provides plenty of time to listen. Might as well listen to something I like. Oh, that's fair enough, I suppose. Twice. Twice. So, what an interesting topic. Non-superhero books. It is such a variety subject. Westerns, fantasy, sci-fi, romance, war, horror, adult, historical adaptations of movies and prose novels, biographies, kids' books, etc. Yeah. I don't think you'll find that level of variety in the actual shows. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, Chris. I hope we don't disappoint you. Which counts as adult. Um, In comics, what's an adult comic? Um, suggested for mature readers. So Vertigo. Oh, fair enough. Um, Alan Moore's Lost Girls. I would definitely not think he's for children. Why? What happens? Uh, lots of porn happens. Right. I believe. I've not read it. But it's an Alan Moore story. Do they all get raped by any chance? I presume so. Yeah, I think Wendy may get raped by Peter Pan. <laughs> I just made that up I don't know because of course that. he can write that but no one can write no one can touch his characters yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not, and not in a naughty way look what he did to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen oh yeah he treated them all with utter respect oh yeah um, first episode of the series sci-fi that you'll find that many of the episodes are sci-fi <laughs> Michael, I'd give you a hard time about cheating if you didn't make me want to read Invincible. You two keep expressing the enjoyment you get from this series every time it is brought up. I'm convinced I'm going to have to add it to my read list. Give it a go, Chris. I think you'd probably like Invincible. Because it is... It's pretty much a straight-down-the-road superhero book. And then it becomes a science fiction book. It grows. Yes. It essentially starts off as a Superman pastiche. Mm -hmm. Which, along the way, becomes a Green Lantern Guardians of the Galaxy pastiche. Yeah. But it does it all just so well. I normally don't like pastiches. Mm. But he's not really dealing in analogues. No. So everything feels like... He's dealing more in archetypes than analogues. Yeah. So I, 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 I've said it before, I think. For me, Invincible is more enjoyable than The Walking Dead. I'm not going to say it's better. I would. Alright, okay. Because Invincible isn't weighed down by um, being repetitive. Yeah, when Walking Dead is something that will benefit from having an ending. You think? Yeah. Alright. I know at the beginning it was set out to be a continuing story of survival horror. Either A, it should end, or B, Rick should die. And that would give the, the series another. Yeah, you can have someone else then. Right. Okay, fair enough. Um, Battlestar Galactica continues Chris I watched this when I could like any sci-fi show when I was a kid both versions have been in Netflix queue for a long time waiting to be enjoyed I have to get to them soon the comic though I don't think I've read it but now I want to at least read the first ones no the first couple are just adaptations of the show skip them and go straight to issue 6 
where it starts going off its own way, and there's some great Pat Broderick artwork and some some not so good Sal Buscema artwork. That's not that I don't like Sal Buscema. Some good Walt Simonson it. But then it's not suited to Galactica, and then you get the Walt Simonson stuff, which is I think was pretty awesome. Second episode of the series War Comics. I know Adam isn't into comics, but not even War Comics. Being a gun enthusiast, I thought maybe no Adam <laughs> just isn't into reading. Well, no, I did make him read Seven Swords and Flex Mentallo when we went on holiday. And, and he enjoyed Seven Soldiers a great deal. He didn't enjoy Flex Mentallo, though. He didn't know. That's my boy! Because <laughs> Flex Mentallo was cack. It was cack. fun read. It was cack. Um, my interest in war comics came from my dad, continues Chris. He was a big fan of war movies, which I watched many times with him. Being the DC fanboy I am, Sergeant Rock, The Haunted Tank, and others have been added to my pile over the years. It's not that I don't like Marvel books, just seems I had easier access to the DC comics. I enjoyed hearing about the issues, and it reminded me of those times reading war comics. Between Back to the Bins and Hey Kids comics, you kids have, over the years, rekindled my love for the comics of my youth and the comics that came before. Should be interesting to see what the next episode will be about. Maybe Angela reviewing a romance book? <laughs> oh, now, well, Angie's really into that. Angie's yeah. favourite comic was Preacher. Yeah. Which kind of gives you some interest in which, which direction Angela's taste's going. Mm. <laughs> the romance book? No, Preacher. And she likes Hitman. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to get her to read Why the Last Man. Because yeah. I think she'd like it. Or Saga. Or Saga. I think she'd like Saga. Great for everyone, Saga's though. just wacky. Yeah. I think Sag is brilliant. Um, thanks for another excellent series of episodes, Chris. You're very welcome. Um, I do I do note that you thanked us for a series of episodes and you've not heard the others. So I'm kind of hoping that the others don't end up being a, a crushing disappointment to you. But, you know, hopefully they won't. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, who emailed in. We appreciate that. The email box is now empty. It cries. It cries out. For more digibytes and kilowattsits and doobries that contribute to words on a screen mm. that we can read for you. Send us your mail. Pretty much, that's what can, I'm saying. Can you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know inboxes could talk. You have mail. <laughs> you don't have mail. And it's crying. <laughs> Send it's more. weeping openly as there is now no more mail. You don't have mail. <laughs> That would be really sad if that was a, an actual message yeah. instead of you've got mail. You don't have mail. And then, or even worse, you don't have mail. Ha <laughs> ha. You have no friends. You have mail. It's spam, though. <laughs> oh, here's somebody's trailer for another show. I'm sure it's wonderful and we'll be right back. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it is. Two longtime fans of two bionic shows discuss an episode in detail every two weeks with one guest host. The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, The Mythology, A Look Behind the Scenes, Those Sound Effects, and The Fashions. Oh my god, The Fashions. Cyborgs, a bionic podcast. Hosted by John S. Drew and Paul K. Bisson. Find us at chronicrift.com slash cyborgs or subscribe on iTunes. And we're back. Mm-hmm. Did you like that one tonight? I did, it was good. Did you not think that was a little nighttime music? <laughs> Smoke them if you got them. <laughs> Michael's just popped the last of his chocolate biscuit into his mouth. 
So there should be no chumped up chumping today. Oh, no. As I do another one of those long, boring, witty bits that, according to Michael, nobody listens to. <laughs> you don't. <laughs> listens to the bit that I put effort into. No, no, this is the stuff where we're just off the cuff and making up as we go along. Everyone loves those bits. Yeah, no, just everyone loves the bits I do. <laughs> oh, can you get your ego through the door? Actually, I can't. It's a bit effort. If there's anything more important than my ego, I, I want it caught and shot. Ah, <laughs> oh, Douglas Adams, how we miss thee. For the final No More Heroes, and here's the comic. There you go, now this electronic drivel. Oh, real comic. Real comic today. My selection is another licensed comic. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that doesn't upset Chris Warren. <laughs> From the vast array of subjects that he said that we could do, mm-hmm. I've picked another licensed comic. I'm Although, sorry, Chris. I do apologise. This is not sci-fi, <laughs> but it's horror. Yes, yes, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So I saved point. you from that one. Yes, well done. Just like Invincible is not a superhero. It's comment. not. <laughs> well, it is. But that issue wasn't. Oh yes, dear me. Uh, but this, however, lovely listener, was from a pretty young comics company that would go on to, at one point, be the third in the industry. Dark Horse Comics started publication in 1986 and was founded by Mike Richardson. Starting out with two titles, Dark Horse Presents and Boris the Burr, <laughs> Dark Horse quickly expanded with more indie books that achieved a decent level of popularity. Paul Chadwick's Concrete and Steve Niles' Criminal Macabre. Over the years, they've even expanded out into film and TV production, and for a short time in the 90s were arguably the most successful comics company at getting their product from comics page to silver screen. Granted, barbed wire was utter toss, but they managed to get it on the screen, so fair play to them. However, their greatest success and the series that put them on the map in terms of competing with the big boys was not the regular, critically acclaimed comic books, but a continuation of an established and popular film series. In 1986, James Cameron had released his critically acclaimed and commercially lucrative sequel to 1979's Alien, with the wonderfully titled Aliens, and Dark Horse picked up the license for the film in 1988. Interestingly, as is the pitfalls with licensed comics, they did not purchase the license for Alien, so events and characters from that movie could not be referenced. Whether this was due to an adaptation of Alien by Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson being published by Heavy Metal, or if this is just one of those vagaries of licensing deals, is unknown. The initial Aliens miniseries, written by Mark Verheiden, with glorious art by Mark Nelson, was published as a six-issue miniseries in monochrome that continues the story from the second film but set ten years later. Following the character of Newt and Corporal Hicks, the series was a gripping continuation of the Alien franchise and gave Dark Horse their first bona fide hit series, clocking up an impressive six reprints of issue number one. I picked up the first series in trade in late 89 or early 1990. At the time of the Tim Burton Batman film, comics and graphic novels were hot and started appearing not for the first time, but for the first time in significant numbers in regular bookshops and newsagents. The trade for this was cheap, about seven quid, so I picked it up to read and was blown away by it. The art was stunning, the plot interesting, and despite the inherent limitations of the alien format, it continued the story of the films in an intriguing manner. Rather than follow the pattern of DC or Marvel, or even Gold Key, of making a continuing series, Dark Horse elected to create a series of minis and one-offs to offset delays and ensure a continuity to creative teams to each series which worked well, creating an anticipation for each mini. 
I continue to read the Dark Horse Alien series through the next few miniseries, which reintroduce Ripley and a war against the aliens on Earth. The release of Alien 3 in 1992 scotched my interest in the comic series. I have to confess, when I saw Alien 3 in the cinema upon its release, it was one of the biggest disappointments in my cinema-going career. It has now been superseded by Star Trek Generations. And part of that was that the comics had done a much better job of continuing the story than the films did. With the events of the comics left redundant by events of the third movie... How could Newton Hicks have adventures ten years later when they had been unceremoniously and rather disrespectfully killed off at the beginning of the third movie? I lost interest in Alien and the tales within. Over the years, I kind of drifted away from Aliens in the comics and the films. I'd always check them out, but the later Alien movies and the Versus Predator series were never as good as the first two films, although Dark Horse did succeed in dragging me back a few times. Dark Horse initiated numerous crossovers with aliens that have been interesting and entertaining. Initially, the aliens did battle with the Predator, again handled much better in the comics than on film, and subsequently they seem to have battled just about everybody from Superman to Judge Dredd. Actress Sigourney Weaver has expressed her dissatisfaction with the comic book approach taken to the material since the first two movies. The word comic book almost dripped off her tongue with contempt in the interview I saw. But given that Aliens vs. Comics had been infinitely more entertaining than the movie she did agree to appear in, that kind of invalidates her opinion in my view. The other time Dark Horse managed to intrigue me was with this one-shot tale from 1994. As mentioned, Dark Horse had took to expanding the alien stories, setting them back in time, forward in time, and on other planets. Earth Angel, originally released as a serially previews catalogue, was reprinted as a one-shot and came out on August 23rd, 1994, with an August cover date, and was one such tale set on Earth in the 1950s. The cover is a fantastic wraparound, almost but not quite cardstock thing by John Byrne. It depicts some of the 50s gang types, think the wild one, wearing those funny caps and leather jackets being attacked by an alien. They seem to be protecting a family, a bespectacled older man, a homely looking mum and a small child. And in the foreground some gang members have fallen to the face huggers and in the background some of them roar around on motorbikes. It's a really spectacular cover, pretty much burn at the peak of his powers, although everyone has the same open-mouthed gape. It's a very full cover as well, with something happening on every square inch of paper. This cost $2.95 back in 1994, and my UK price sticker of £2.20, which is in no way reflective of the exchange rate, is still on the comic. I still think it must be hard to compose a cover like this, as the most important elements have to happen on the right-hand side, as that's the side that's displayed on the racks, but the back page has to be striking as well, so as to form a cohesive whole. Sometimes I've seen this done and not really work very well, but here Byrne does such a good job with the composition that opening up merely gives a fuller feel to an already great cover. What do you think, Michael? I think it's great. It's excellent, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely fantastic cover. Well coloured as well. Mm. None of that orange sky dribble no I mean there's a purple sky which it's night but so. it could be dusk or dawn or, or whatever couldn't mm-hmm. it so that, that works perfectly but yeah excellent excellent cover I don't understand why some of the leather jackets are depicted as pink unless the the, bang, the bike the biker gang sorry I called the pink ladies which would be a crossover with Greece <laughs> rather than a Greece alien <laughs> crossover oh yeah wouldn't we just love to see Kaniki's chest burst <laughs> with a chest burster coming out of it? Driving down the, the pouch of the alien like mother, dr- yeah, like, going the other following way. him. Yeah, the that alien would be fantastic. Driving one way and 
And I think we would all like to see a face of a suck John Travolta's face off. <laughs> That would be fantastic. You seem trying to get it off. <laughs> you know what would be brilliant? That doesn't reflect well for No, it doesn't reflect well on audio. My club was doing like the Saturday night theme, I think. Yeah, you know what would be great? Yeah. If Sandra D turned into Ripley. <laughs> so you had Olivia Newton John walking around in those tight leather pants with a flamethrower <laughs> gunning down all the aliens. <laughs> you should make a low budget Grease versus Alien. Graylians. Yeah. <laughs> And it would get around copyright that way. Yes, because we totally could. And we'd have to call them like Sandy Sandy Doo. And <laughs> Sandra D. And, and what was John Travolta's name? Oh, Sandy E. Yeah, yeah, that'd work. That'd totally work. Instead of Kanicki, Kanucky. <laughs> Kentucky. <laughs> we really wouldn't get away with Kentucky. <laughs> Kanicki. <laughs> oh, that's much funnier. Yeah. I like that. Anyway, back to this comic. Now that we've pitched our Grease Aliens crossover. I think it's great we should start a film this summer. <laughs> Sigourney Weaver really would like that. <laughs> um, Earth Angel. It's even got a brilliant, it's even got the song there, isn't it? Earth Angel, Earth Angel, will you be mine? <laughs> Your acid blood is ripping so off my... my eyes. <laughs> Very good, much better than mine. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Uh, what was I saying? <laughs> Earth Angel was written and illustrated by John Byrne, coloured by Matt Webb, and designed by April Johnson. The original serial was edited by Ronnie Noyes, and based upon the designs of H. R. Geiger. The story. Matt and Luann are a young couple out on a date, when Matt, knowing how to show a girl a good time, has taken her to look at a UFO that has crashed in the hills. They manage to drag the pilot of the downed craft away as it explodes, and they marvel at his funny no-eyed face. A face that we know is actually a face hugger. Matt and Luann take the pilot to a nearby doctor, who not only doesn't charge for his services, but is in his office late at night. Now that is science fiction. He examines the alien and, true to form, the facehugger falls off. And as the alien pilot thrashes and struggles, his chest is torn apart as a new life form is born. At a nearby biker bar, Mickey is forced to take a leak outside, as the toilet is occupied. After a while, his disappearance is noted and a search party dispatched, but is dispatched to the heavens by a bizarre-looking creature that looks like H.R. Geiger's wet dream. The Doc has decided that making like a tree is the smart course of action after witnessing the chest burster and throws his family into the station wagon for an impromptu trip to the mother-in-law's. Now that's even more science fiction that he <laughs> wants to go to the mother-in-law's, but, but we'll let that go. The journey takes them past the biker bar and the two plots collide in exactly the same way that the Doc's car collides with the alien. Swerving, the Doc drops his cigarette lighter and the car goes up in flame as the alien, frankly put out at being run over, lashes out at the Doc and his family. Doc manages to free his brood from the car as the flames reach the gas tank, resulting in exactly what you would expect, a huge explosion. The family run, right into Mickey and his pals, who are being used as breeders for the alien. The biker gang have also happened upon the scene, just as Mickey decides to hurl up the contents of his stomach through his chest. And the doc realises flame hurts the beasties when a chest burster attacks a biker, causing his bike to smash into a tree and blow up. 
The talk starts to set the remaining gang members afire, but the leader refuses to burn his friends and instead elects to pull the face hoggers off them, resulting in acid blood setting fire to the cigarette lighter in his pocket. The dog hurls the burning jacket at the nest and pulls a convenient gas canister off a bike and pours it out over the remaining eggs. The flames burn into the night and the police and army arrive but have no choice but to let the fire burn itself out. The dog and his family must walk the rest of the way to the mother-in-law's where, bedraggled and sooty, they phone for an ambulance. It is only here that in a twist worthy of Rod Serling we learn that the doc's name is Dr. Daniel Ripley. You know, thinking about it, after yeah. Greece, yeah. back to the aliens. <laughs> Marty McFly encounters the aliens. Yep. See, Marty wakes up one day and goes, Oh no, what are all these aliens doing about? Doc must have done something in the past. Has to go back to 1950s, right? Yeah. To stop the aliens from coming to Earth. Perfectly fine with me. Yeah. Let's be honest, Dark Horse seemed to cross them over with Archie at some point. <laughs> yeah. Calvin and Hobbes versus aliens. Yeah. Punisher versus aliens. Well, that so, makes more sense. So, so these ideas of ours are certainly, I think, yeah. well within the bounds of credibility. Archie versus aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Do I really have to decide between Betty and Veronica? Oh, Veronica's got a face hugger. Hey, Betty, you're doing anything tonight. <laughs> and Betty's chest has just burst. <laughs> I always wanted to see what was under that jumper, but not quite like this. Uh, page one. The prologue has some fine examples of Burns' sci-fi tech, which he does very well. Even though we only see the back half of the spaceship crashed into the ground, it looks very functional and very in keeping with the design aesthetic of the Alien movies. The crashed Bem's spacesuit also looks impressive and also adds a neat touch. We never think of Alf needing a spacesuit. This period detail is impressive, with Luan looking like she just stepped out of I Love Lucy and Matt's bowling shoes. Um, what I do like about the ship and the alien in it is that they look like a Cylon and a Raider. The ship especially looks like a Cylon Raider from the originals, I think. Yeah, it does a bit. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. I mean, you can't see the front of it, so it could have two horns at the front for all we know. <laughs> but yeah, it, it is quite similar to a Cylon, um, a Cylon Raider. Mm. Yeah, and it, it, it's in, I liked that, because when they, they pull him out of the ship, uh, and you think that's the alien... And it's yeah. only later on you realise he's wearing spacesuit, mm-hmm. which I thought was really clever. Like I said, we, you don't think of aliens having to wear spacesuits. No. Hell, in all these sci-fi TV shows, we don't bloody wear spacesuits when we go out <laughs> into space, do we? No. Battlestar Galactica, to go bring it back, they're, they're just sat in the canopy of a spaceship with nothing. Mm. They're not wearing a spacesuit. If their ship goes and they've got to eject, they're buggered. Well, they, they do, yeah. Does the entire canopy eject? Is that how it keeps them alive? Yeah. If they can't eject them into space because no, they're no, going to no. die. It shoots the, the canopy off and the seat goes out. But they do have the helmets. So do the helmets act as yeah. breathing equipment? Because right. they do have the ox- oxygen equipment. Right. Okay, fair enough. There we go. Battlestar Galactica versus Aliens. I totally watched that. Yeah. That would be awesome. Which Galactica, though? Cheesy 70s Galactica or gritty 2000 Galactica? I think it Galactica? might only work if, properly if they do the new one. You reckon? Mm. I think that. I think it'd be too easy to yeah to camp it up if you did the original, wouldn't it? Ah, what's that? Yeah, it's an alien. I just have I have visions of Starbucks just beating it at a pyramid or whatever that card <laughs> yeah. game was. Beady beady beady. <laughs> oh god, a Buck Rogers alien crossover! I would pay good money to see the alien drop acid. I'd pay good money to see an alien drop acid. I'd pay good money to see the alien drop acid all over, tweak it. That. Hot-headed shit. Duh. 
in the intro this was originally serialised in previews catalogue in two page instalments which does rather show when you're reading it doesn't it each second page has a cliffhanger it's not to the story's detriment I didn't think but um, if another page has been added to the beginning like a splash the layout of the comic would have been such that the cliffhanger endings Byrne cleverly builds into every other page would have been preserved in the comic book itself Byrne did offer apparently to add some extra details to make it flow better as a comic book, but Dark Horse turned him down, saying it would be too expensive. Mm-hmm. Apparently, even if he said he'd do it for free, that was too expensive. Fair enough. I don't think, I don't understand how that works. Printing, maybe? Mm, possibly. You know the ginger guy? Looks like Jimmy Olsen. I've got exactly the same notes. I'm oh. not one of those people that thinks that Byrne has only one face. But yeah, Matt Webber looks exactly like Jimmy Olsen. He also, I mean, if you colour his hair blonde, he looks like Johnny Storm. Yeah. So I'm kind of invalidating the Superman Jimmy Olsen versus Aliens. Well, they did Superman versus Aliens, didn't they? Dark Side versus Aliens. Dark Side versus Aliens would be awesome. Yeah. Oh, Doctor Doom versus <laughs> Aliens. That would be brilliant. <laughs> we should write these. We should, but we don't, I don't want to work with other people's characters. I want to work with my own characters. Of course. But Doctor Doom versus Aliens, that would be tempting. Yeah. Wouldn't it? <laughs> um, Matt's name um, I don't think we've mentioned is, is given as being Matthew Webber which I presume is named after the colourist okay. who is, is Matt Webber oh no he's Matt Webb mm. so I presume he'd, he'd be elongated his name for you know, I don't know copyright reasons or something uh, the level of detail in the panel setting Doc Ripley's office is brilliant you can see all the stuff that he's got like the gauze and the scissors for cutting not bandages paper. and the toilet paper yeah and the bin there's a bin and it's just a wonderful panel it's not one of the better ones as we get into this <laughs> there will be some fantastic panels uh, again putting lie to the idea that Byrne doesn't do background page 4 the chest bursting scene yeah. just as bloody as in the movie I'm not convinced by the chest burster I don't think it looks quite as, as good as the one in the film which looks, given the one in the film was a puppet it looks pretty satanic yeah it's good but he, I thought just looking at his face it looks so happy it looks like he's having a blast right though maybe being born is fun for them <laughs> yeah unlike for us although we don't remember it do we well they do grow pretty quickly so. they do yeah so it is fun I do, I do like it and I do like this is blood everywhere <laughs> which is awesome um, page 5 again from the detail file look at the top two panels as we go into the biker bar the ex exterior shot the biker bar is dirty and the bikes have mud caked on the spokes and in the mud flaps but inside the bar the floor has footprints on it and dirt from the biker's shoes there are empty cans and bottles scattered around there are people passed out on the floor and the only thing that looks clean is the jukebox Mm. which I presume has some chuck berry on it Um, panel 3 also has some open sexuality with cherry I bet she lost her cherry a long time ago Uh, the barmaid is getting felt up 
that would perhaps not have made it into a 50 schlock sci-fi movie mm. unless it was a hammer horror one they probably wouldn't have been bothered by <laughs> oh, that oh gee they? golly I can't let you do that oh why not you're being a squirrel oh. <laughs> is that an alien oh. this is heavy dark <laughs> what, what's this why heavy what problem is there with the gravity in the future quickly let's drive out and uh, make out point oh, more aliens <laughs> make out point <laughs> yeah that's okay, Dad, Dad, Daddy. You know the cliffs where they all drive up to. Yeah, there's always an inspiration point. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, page six, which carries over the detail in the art. I'll say that again because that didn't make sense. Page six, the detail in the art carries over. Mickey can't use the toilet. Although, given the mess that the rest of the bar is in, I can't see why he'd want to. <laughs> it's probably a sty in there, um, due to it being used by Big Tom. And his lady. I don't mean to cast aspersions, <laughs> but given the state of this bar on here, mm. on the outside, if you'd have intercourse in the toilets in this place, I can't imagine that that's Again, very hygienic. Not from your partner. Yeah, yes, yeah, the toilet seat's probably crawling with with greeblies. Yeah. I don't want to offend you now. I'm sure she's a lovely woman, whoever Big Tom's lady is, because I don't think we ever see her, but I'm sure she's lovely. I do love that somebody does say daddy Yeah. <laughs> Which was great. Oh, that was funny. Um, the shot of the alien on this page is also excellent, but it does show why less may be more in regards to its design. While it is spectacular, the fact that it's rather top-heavy in relation to its spindly legs makes you think it's possible that this wouldn't work in reality. Mm. This isn't reality, is it's it? Not, but one of the things I also notice is um, its eyes are different. It doesn't have eyes, it's blind. Well, not here, it's got like two bulges yeah. where its eyes are, whereas in the movies it's like one smooth bit running from teeth to the back of the head. Maybe there are just different species. Maybe this is the Klingon one. Oh, right, These yeah. are the ridges on its head, and it's, it's actually saying that this is a good day to die. <laughs> it's a good day to yearn. <laughs> I am not a merry man. <laughs> Uh, page 7 you've got to give kudos to Matt Webb again whose colouring has been excellent throughout this entire issue but specifically the colouring on the panel with the alien attacks in the woods and is illuminated only by Mickey's torchlight is just fantastic uh, actually it's not yeah it is Mickey no it's not Mickey at this point is it the searching for Mickey but that panel the last panel of the page where the torch is shined right on the alien the way he's coloured it the torchlight is black and white so he's not coloured the area of the panel that would be in the torchlight. Mm. And then he has coloured around where the torchlight fades away. And it's just a fantastic colouring job. It's really, really good. Very moody and well illuminated. Exceptionally good job, mm-hmm. Mr. Matt Webb. I don't know what else Matt Webb's ever done, apart from John Burns next man, but this is, this is really good. Page 9. Burn actually plays fur with the reader. If you look very carefully at the mailbox during the exterior shot of the dog's house, it clearly says Ripley on the mailbox. So it's given away the ending yeah, before. But you don't notice it when you're reading it, do you? Because you're not going to pay attention to it. Because you're not paying attention to it, but he's playing for. Yeah. The name is on the mailbox, which I thought was a really, really nice touch. Again, the level of detail in the house is wonderful. It's 1955, so there's no TV. Mm-hmm. Not every house had a television. Remember, Back to the Future, they were just getting the first television. Yeah. So they could watch Howdy Doody Time. I don't know what Howdy Doody Time is. Did you know that the episode we watched actually aired after the film is set? 
Did it really? It did, actually. How do you know this? Well, because I've read it somewhere. And so I had a rerun. I also read that... Oh, no, that's when they're watching The Honeymooners, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Howdy Doody Times in Back to the Future 2, isn't it? Yeah. Or 3. I, I think it's in the first one. Do they? I knew he watches Howdy Doody Time in Part 3. Yeah. Because I watched that last week. Although, if Martin McFly comes out of the 80s... Yeah. And kept with the money in his pocket, mm. the money that he then spends on a coffee in the 50s... He doesn't pay for it, does he? He's yeah. Pepsi-free. He's coffee, he leaves the money on the table. Does he? Yeah. It's entirely possible the guy just doesn't check. <laughs> what if he does, though? He's, he's out of luck. That's some, that's some heavy change. Did it? <laughs> what is it with heavy? Why is everything so heavy in the future? Um... Where are we? Page 10, they decide to take a trip to the mother-in-law's without letting her know they're going because she doesn't have a phone. Mm-hmm. I thought that was fantastic. Think about that for a minute. This is an era where people carry their phones, which are as big as credit cards, in their back pockets everywhere they go. Yeah. And not only here did you have to be in to take a phone call, you had to have a phone. Yeah. Oh, that was really good. Oh, that was a nice little touch. It does also get rid of the... Um Deus Ex that every story now has. Yeah, we have to. Yeah. We have to say, establish that the phone has no signal. Mm. What are they going to do at some point in the future when we make it so there is nowhere you can go on Earth yeah. where you don't have a signal? Every story has to be set in the past. So you're going to eventually have to have a thing where everyone's phone's going to have to run out. Yeah. Or they're going to drop it. That's the other favourite one now, isn't it? Yeah. They drop the phone and it breaks. That kind of thing. I've dropped my phone tons of times. It's never broke. It's got a big crack on it. Yeah. It's never broke. Again, kudos to Matt Webb. The panel where they're all inside the car is beautifully coloured in, in blues because it's night time. But he's lighting his cigarette with the car cigarette lighter and his face is illuminated yellow. Yeah. Fantastic job. And again, the alien is illuminated just by the headlights of the car. Mm-hmm giving him a, an eerie white-blue glow. I like that he's a doctor, but he smokes. Because everyone smoked in those days. Everyone smokes in the Hell, 50s. it was healthy to smoke. It was. It was promoted as being very healthy. Yeah. Uh, also, pages 11 and 12 is exceptionally well-structured and fast-paced action beat. The chat in the car, whilst Dot Ripley lights his cigarette, hits the alien, crashes through the windscreen. Dot Ripley drops the lighter, which sets the car on fire, which adds another level of jeopardy to the situation as the alien attacks whilst the car is on fire. Page 12, with the daughter avoiding the alien and the fire whilst the flames engulf the alien, is rather wonderful in both art and colour. Page 16, after pulling his daughter from the flames... The biker gang and the dock plots collide and we get another chest burster, which is every bit as gory as the last one, but looks a bit thinner. It look, Yeah, his face looks different as well. This one's been... Maybe it's entirely dependent on what kind of life form they gestate in. Because the one on page four, remember, didn't gestate in a human. Yeah. It gestated in whatever the hell that guy was. It looks like Block from... Um, <laughs> The Legion of Superheroes? Yeah. Yeah, he looks like Block from the Legion of Superheroes. Whereas this one's gestated in a human. Mm. So this so one looks, looks more, more like, the, like the one that, that burst out of John Hurt. Mm. Yeah. So, I don't know if that's true. I don't know enough about alien mythology. It's a good enough no prize. It's, yeah, it's a good enough explanation for why it's different. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, I do like that the Doc is a take-charge ass-kicker. Yeah. Which is in keeping with the the 50s sci-fi movies that this is attempting to emulate. Uh, Remember, the scientists and doctors in those movies weren't the geeks and losers that they're portrayed today. They were take-no-prisoners action men, as handy with their fists as with their brains. This carried on a little bit into productions like Planet of the Apes, where Charlton Heston's character was shown to be smart 
as well as a fighter, James T. Kirk, in his original incarnation anyway, not the 2009 movie, was a man not unfamiliar with the pages of a book, and both Quantum Leap Sam Beckett and Farscape's John Crichton were in this mould. The rise of the burly, literate action hero of the 80s sadly brought an end to this, with people often being suspicious now of smart, well-read people as seen in Independence Day. Nobody believed Jeff Goldblum Mm. until Will Smith punched that alien in the face. All the more recent Batman movies, where Batman's intelligence is downplayed in favour of showing that his studies seem to consist of just, you know, martial arts. <laughs> That's all he did. Did some martial arts. And some battle. As ever, and some battle. <laughs> he studied battle at the feet of Nuriev. <laughs> and he also did some martial arts so he could do those Kelly Jones pauses. <laughs> useful when it's aliens versus Greece versus Batman. <laughs> what, you have to do a dance off? John Travolta as Batman. <laughs> Let me get my bat roller Oh dear God. Uh, page... Dance circles around those alien scum. You get chills in the night <laughs> and I don't go down crime alley. Anyway, pages 19 through 20 are almost wordless. So again, another fantastic action piece where the art carries the action along. The burning of the nest as the aliens are born is magnificent in both art and colour. Mostly silhouetted shots of the aliens burning alive as they exit the womb, which is quite horrific. And the piece ends with no one knowing what happened or how, which fits again with movies of the time. Um, I thought this was fantastic. Mm. I really, really, really enjoyed rereading this. Because I had a couple of choices for what would have been this. Like we considered an issue of Alias, didn't we? Yeah. Bendis' Alias, and I considered I considered quite a lot of different things. Ultimately, I did feel I wanted to do some Aliens. Mm. And this one, I remembered that this was a one-shot. I just thought this was fantastic. Taking Alien, which is essentially a 50s creature feature in a haunted house, but your haunted house is in space. Yeah. Um, back to its root as a 50s creature feature was inspired and this works really, really well. The art is burn at the top of his game. Um, he inks himself in this, which sometimes has a more scratchy look. But in this case, I felt that it served the story exceptionally well. As with most 50s bug-eyed monster sci-fi, the characters are, uh, are largely caricatures for the most part. The stern Doctor figure representing the scientists that were prevalent in 50s movies like This Island Earth. The bikers, who are though just to be alien fodder. But this really is inconsequential to the carnage and bloodletting. All the elements we expect from an alien tale are present and correct, and there is a substantial amount of blood and gore, more than we would have got in a film made in the 50s. Inadvertently, this does point out the problems and pitfalls of alien stories, as well as the pluses. They're all the same. The stories rely on the people being completely unaware of the alien and its abilities, and the ingenuity of the central character is normally key to resolving the issue, normally with a flamethrower. Even aliens, which did manage to further the story, still had basically the same elements in place as the first movie. Lock down the base, cannon fodder, characters unable to deal, ingenuity, flamethrower, etc. But mix them up enough to be entertaining. The twist ending is funny rather than clever, because it makes no difference to the story that this is Ripley is presumably a distant relative of Ellen Ripley, Sigourney Weaver's character in the film, and is a rather huge coincidence when you think about it. In addition, its roots as a two-page serialised strip show through once you know about it, but none of this matters. As a blending of where Alien came from with the more bloody approach of cinema of the 90s, this is as good 
as Dark Horse Alien Comics got and a very entertaining read. I'd love to see Byrne do a proper adaptation of War of the Worlds in this style. Mm. I don't know if he'd draw in this style anymore, though. No. That's the problem. What did you think of it, Michael? I really enjoyed it. It was excellent, wasn't it? Yeah. It was a really, really good story. You don't have to know anything about Alien prior or after. Mm. It just works as its own as a 50s creature feature. If you know it is Alien, then the ending is like the Twilight Zone. Yeah. You expect the camera to pull back and Rod Serling be stood there smoking, going, uh, this man, this strange doctor has just learned, even in the darkest reaches of civility, there lurks an entrance to the Twilight Zone. <laughs> Which works. Yeah. I think it was brilliant. Excellent, excellent issue. Good choice by me. <laughs> <laughs> I will pat myself on the back for my ingenuity. Uh, as with most Dark Horse books of the time, the ads were all at the back. As may be expected, John Byrne's Next Men gets a full-page ad. We're starting the Lies storyline, which would nearly be the end of, of Volume 1. Uh, it's followed by an Indiana Jones and the Shrine of the Sea Devil and a two-part Time Cop series. I didn't know they did a Time Cop comic. I must have completely forgot all about it. What is Time Cop? Time Cop's a film starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, right. I couldn't get through it because Jean-Claude Van Damme's in it. Lots of people say Time Cop's really good. Yeah. I can't get past Jean-Claude Van Damme. <laughs> He's such a charisma vacuum I cannot watch anything with him in there's even an episode of Friends that he's in yeah. that he is so bad he makes even the worst member of the Friends cast looks like Laurence Olivier he's awful absolutely terrible actor Jean-Claude Van Damme I'm sure he's a lovely man just a bad actor but he's a bad actor uh, Mad Men Bubblegum Cards sans bubblegum Flaming Carrot Comics and Predator Invaders from the Fourth Dimension, which I, I presume is a 3D comic. Because it, it just says, 11-year-old Tommy loves watching 3D monster movies until one of the monsters starts watching back. Because every now and again we'll come up with this idea that 3D comics are great, don't we? Mm-hmm. No, they're not. They're irritating. 3D comics are irritating. I like them. No, I can't. I, I just read. I just read Absolute Final Crisis, and then that is Superman Beyond. And it is, is it in three D? Yeah, because mm. appara- apparently they don't do absolute versions that are two D. But and it is twoed, not it, freed. Yeah, but it is actually really good in three D. I'll take your word for it. I, I can't it, stand them in an absolute format. It's awkward. to read. Shininess <laughs> as well. <laughs> Um, Dark Horse also had their own bullpen bulletins type page called The Finish Line, complete with a checklist. The page itself plugs the Mask movie, one of the few times I've found Jim Curry tolerable, and talks about why licensed comics don't need to be crap, Mm -hmm. which I found was quite apt, given that this issue was a licensed comic. That was not crap. Well, that was my pick for this week. What's yours, young Michael? Uh, Well, this week, rather than picking a comic that fits into a certain theme... I chose an issue of Planetary. Excellent. Not a superhero comic in any way. It's not, no. <laughs> so you could have gone anywhere. As Chris mentioned in his email, war comics, romance comics, sci-fi comics, you could have Vertigo, Hellblazer, Pirichia. I would have even tolerated an issue of The Invisibles. But no. A superhero comic. It's not a superhero comic. And I am a reasons, okay? I will pretty, pretty do tell. I would have done a Hellblazer. But we're doing that in a couple of weeks. We are returning to Hellblazer, yes. Uh, I would have done Invisibles or some, uh, something like that, but I'd only do a Grant Morrison for some time being. Fair enough. Uh, but I'm down with that. Means I don't have to read it. Oh yeah, yeah. But it's not a superhero story. 
Okay. So, in 1998, issue 33 of Gen 13 and issue 6 of C23 were released, with a backup written by Warren Ellis and illustrated by John Cassidy, entitled Planetary Nuclear Spring. Planetary, which was originally planned to be a 24-issue miniseries, would focus on the superhero genre rather than superheroes themselves. Uh, a, a cunning... Yeah. A cunning loophole! Indeed. And would view superheroes with an outside perspective. It would feature analogues of fictional characters such as Sherlock Holmes, Godzilla and Doc Savage, particularly Doc Savage, <coughs> as well as DC heroes. Due to illnesses on Ellis's part and commitments to other titles such as on Cassidy's part, the series went on hold from 2001 to 2003, started again in 2004 and finally finished in 2009 with issue 27. I was going to say as well, there are analogues in the other stories that we're going to cover in this trade yeah. of the Fantastic Four and the Hulk. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this series took 10 years to do 27, to do 27 issues. That's... Yeah. That's appalling. That's worse than Straczynski, that is. God, yeah. Well, at least Ellis stuck with it. (laughs) Fair play. Um, Ellis also tied it into his other series, The Authority, as though they existed in the same world rather than actually teaming up. Uh, They never did meet, apart from Elijah Snow and Jenny Sparks sleeping together once and never speaking again. (laughs) What issue was that in? I I think that was actually Mark Miller's... Of course. Jenny Sparks. I'm shocked. Miniseries, well, not miniseries, graphic novel. Um, Planetary Issue 3 was the one I chose for today's show, Dead Gunfighters, which was written by Warren Ellis, with art by John Cassidy, coloured by Laura Depew, Depew, Depoy, Depoy, lettered by Ali Futch, Fuchs, I really want to say Ali F- <laughs> Fuchs, <laughs> and edited by John Lehman. To be fair, I only know how that's pronounced because there is a character called Fuchs in John Carpenter's The Thing. Fair enough. <clears throat> The cover... <clears throat> yes, should I get the... <laughs> should we get the comics on yeah, what yeah, yeah. we're talking about? Flicking through this graphic novel, which is real. Is real, yes. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, the cover is a widescreen panel surrounded by a black border. That's the titles and credits. The panel shows a ghost-like person jump over in a car and firing two guns at the viewer. It's done, in, it's done well in that the, the background is coloured and inks, but the character himself is just left as pencils. Mm. And he's transparent, which is very well done. Mm. It's good, there's no lot to it. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest, the cover consists of two-thirds black. Yeah. Which can't have taken a long... Oh, it's John Cassidy, it probably took in three weeks. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's alright, it's good, I suppose. I mean, there are better planetary covers than this. Yeah. Because a lot of them would do wacky, pulp-style covers. Mm. Uh, so... That just reeks of John Woo, doesn't it? Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> Which is what this movie is. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. There's a legend in Hong Kong about a murdered cop back for revenge. Planetary discovers the legend is true. An empty bullet shell drops to the floor, followed by a dead woman missing an eye. The gunman smiles to himself and gets into his car and drives off, following another car. The two cars speed down the road, where a police officer stands in the middle and aims his gun at them. The front car picks up speed but drives straight through the cop who shoots the two men inside, killing them as they drive through him. The car crashes into a lamppost and the second car swerves around the cop who shoots as he runs towards it. The passenger and the two men in the back seats are ripped into bloody pieces that cover the car and the gunman who drives off. The cop stands still in the road and, with eyes glowing red, shoots a burning bullet that runs parallel to the car, takes a sharp 90 degree turn 
and hits the gunman in the head, setting him on fire. The car crashes, the cop vanishes, and the planetary come out of the streets having witnessed the entire thing. Later, at Planetary Hong Kong, Elijah Snow, Chiquita Wagner, and the drummer ask a member of the Hong Kong division about the ghost they saw earlier that night. She says that he was just an urban myth that no one actually believed about a police officer who is betrayed and kills criminals until another cop is betrayed and killed. The group head to where the cop was killed and work out what happened to him. Some time ago, the tribes wanted a popular film starring for their production company, but he refused. So they castrated his brother and nailed pieces to his daughter's door, of course. <laughs> That's what I'd do. Detective Chi Wai and his partner Mok had solved everything and worked out everyone involved. They interrogated the hide men and they gave them and they gave them the name of the man who gave the order. But on the way to the man, Chi Wai was killed and Mok went missing. The drummer finds a crack in the street and senses a junction box, so she so gets Jikita to stamp on the spot to create kinetic energy. The floor lights up and a giant container rises, with hundreds of bodies within it. Drummer describes it as a giant stack of hard drives containing unknown information, but the ghost, who appears behind them, describes it as God. Jikita questions the ghost, who says he was killed by a man named Tony and his partner, who just didn't like Chiwaya that much. Wai was brought back for vengeance, which is what he did when he killed Tony earlier that night. Wai says all he wanted to do as a cop was do the right thing and make sure good people didn't get hurt, and asked Planetary to pass on a message to his girlfriend, to make the most of her life, because having seen death, he knows there's nothing after it. At that moment, Mok appears behind him, speeding down the road di directly towards Wai, Chiquita runs directly towards the car and skids into it, smashing it and sending Mok flying out of the windshield. Y guns down the rest of the cars that came with him before holding Mok at gunpoint. He yells at Mok before pulling the trigger and turns to the group. He tells them that they came searching for a mystery, but there was not. Just us. Justice? Just us. Very good. Um, <clears throat> this was really good, actually. Yeah. Do you know, how long have we had this trade on our bookshelf? A long Since time. it came out? Yeah. In 1999. I'm convinced I've never read this. Have you not? I'm convinced I haven't, I, I didn't it. remember any of it. Mm. So I read through this entire trade paperback for this show. Mm. It didn't take me very long. I'll, I'll give you that. But I've never read this before. Well, I, I read it some time ago because I was reading it with Authority. Right. And it was one of those things, like, we have all of... Well, the good author. We have all of Warren Ellis' authority. Yeah. I don't give a toss so about like, anything. Why, why have we not got all of this? Yeah, because so I've, I've never read it. Yeah. I bought the first trade paper back of this. I never read it, and it just sat on the shelf. Mm. Until you picked it for the show, I swore down. I'd forgotten we had this. Yeah. So... <laughs> So it was good that you picked something I've never read because mm. it meant I got to read it. The thing with Warren Ellis, which is uh, is funny, um, we slack him off quite a lot because of his superhero stuff. Yes, but then his things like Transmetropolitan and Authority and Planetary are really, really good. Yeah, see, the thing I have with, with Warren Ellis is I actually think he's an exceptional writer. Yeah. And I think he's an exceptional writer. When he wants to be. No, no, I think he is. I think even when he does his superhero stuff, it's eminently readable. Yeah. But there is that element of he's taking the mick out of you for enjoying it. But he still he still seems to treat it seriously enough when he's doing it. Mm. And whilst there is that air of cynicism to his work that there is with Miller, yeah. there's also heart to Ellis's stuff that isn't there with Miller's stuff. Because Miller is just... Yeah, Miller's yeah. there just to be cynical and shock because he's discovered that sells. Yeah. And so that's the path he's gone down. And on the one hand, I can't fault him for giving his audience what they want. Mm -hmm. 
they, there must be people out there who like that because he's very rich. Yes. And he's now in some kind of position of power at Fox Studios because of it. So fair play to him. You've got to appreciate that he managed to go from writing Superman Adventures yeah. to becoming one of the best paid writers on the planet. And he's never made any bones of the fact. He wrote a Sonic the Hedgehog. And he wrote Sonic the Hedgehog. But he's never made many any bones of the fact that I'm in it for the money. Yeah. So, I mean, he's Scottish, so that explains <laughs> a lot about that. But, on the one hand, you can't slag him off for that. Mm. On the other, at some point, I would like to think that if I got to that position... I would eventually get to the point where I've got enough money now I'm going to write something I want to write yeah and maybe that way will lead to him not being popular anymore I don't know but that to me is the difference with him and Ellis Miller often seems to me that he wants to be Grant Morrison or Warren Ellis yeah and although his stuff is enjoyable it's not as good in terms of writing yeah Especially uh, when you realise yeah. it's all for shock value, like the end of his authority, which yeah. had to be cancelled because of where he was going. Yeah, and there was Nemesis, which I enjoyed, but what was there to Nemesis that warranted six issues? There wasn't anything to Nemesis until the last page. And what was the one he wrote that the last issue basically said, screw you for reading this? Was that Wanted? Wanted was the one that ended with um, the Eminem analogue. Was it? Um, it was, yeah, I remember because I read this in Supergods where um, Grant Morrison nicely slags him off. Nicely. Nicely. He does. In that eloquent way that Morrison does. Well, what he does is he says all this good stuff about him and praises him and then says, but you do know that he is just a bad writer. <laughs> I don't know. I disagree with Morrison, though. I mean, you know, I have my problems with a lot of Grant Morrison's work. Mm. I do think he's a good writer. Yeah. I don't think a lot of what he writes is to my taste. That's not to say I think he, he's a bad writer. Just not room for you. No, but there are times where I think he's been deliberately obtuse. Yeah. There is... I do hold this opinion that you can write the most complex thing in the universe. And if you're a good writer, I will understand what you're talking about. The invisible. Yeah, if you failed... And I don't understand the story. That's not me failing as a reader. Hmm. You have failed me as a writer that I've not understood your story. Well, my argument with the Invisibles that I thought of when I read Action Comics, uh, I thought Action Comics was utterly pants because it was incoherent. Yeah. And I was thinking about it, but even the Invisibles has has coherency to it. Yes. The Invisibles... I've never read the Invisibles, but from what I've read of the Invisibles, it ultimately makes sense. Yeah, it does. But Action Comics never did, so... Yeah, okay, fair enough. Whereas Ellis... I never get the feeling that, A, Ellis is being like Morrison, where he's just trying to deliberately show me how clever he is. But it's still even though he similar is. too. Yeah, yeah, even though he obviously is very intelligent. Mm. And the ideas that he's putting forth in the pages of his stories are smart. Yeah. Although, to be honest, there was nothing in Planetary I felt was original. Have, well, I thought Planetary could have been written by Morrison. No, it's, it's far too linear to Morrison. I guess there are themes in there. Oh, yeah, there's, there's very definite thematic similarities between the stuff Ellis writes, the stuff Morrison writes, and the stuff Miller writes. Yeah. The difference being, I always get the feeling Grant Morrison is trying to show me how clever he is, and Mark Miller is just trying to show me how cool it looks when somebody's brains splatter all over the screen. Yes. And with Warren Ellis, I get the feeling that he, he manages to balance the excesses of Morrison and the excesses of Miller in such a way 
that he makes his work much more accessible than either one of them. Despite the fact he is essentially dealing with the same themes and ideas. Mm. And certainly in this series, he's dealing with the same themes and ideas Stan Lee did. Yeah. Essentially, that's what he's doing in this series. There's a Hulk analogue. There's a Fantastic Four analogue. There's a Justice League analogue. And the origins are exactly the same. Yeah. As they are in those ones. And then he just twists them and goes in a different direction. Uh, page one was very striking with the, the girl being shot dead through the eye. Uh, again, it's difficult to imagine Miller wouldn't have gone for the shock value of that scene. Of showing you yeah, the... Whereas here, we see the, the, the gun casing fall to the yeah. floor. And then we see her dead body fall to the floor. And we see that the, the eye is gone. Hmm. So the implication being that she's shot through the eye. So again, the violence was kept off panel. And to me, that was horrific enough. As yeah. somebody who is not fond of violence against women in any form. That's all you needed. That's all I needed to get the point of the story. Mm. My problem with this, was it Ellis or Alan Moore who said that they got rid of sound effects in comics because he thought they were dumb? Because I wouldn't have had any problem with there being a couple of sound effects here, like a dink when the gun case falls to the floor. Um, I thought it worked well. If you think about it, this beginning is essentially the beginning of a film. Yeah. It's very similar. It's a film. John Woo film. That's it, what this is. I suppose you could imagine it as being silent, maybe slow motion. Yeah. It works without but the it, sound it effects. It would have worked with. But it, wor- it would have worked well with sound effects, yeah. Uh, but the first sequence, I think, is really, really good from the story to the art. The ghost looks great with a pencil-like effect to him, which makes him grey, but it is transparent. Mm. And the pacing is great, too. It's a really good cinematic opening. Um, my favourite part being with a gun, with a cop guns down the men as they drive through. Yeah, the, the dead cop stands in the middle of the road. Yeah. The car drives through him because he's a ghost, mm-hmm. but then he manages to shoot out the windscreen and shoot the two guys dead. It's how those panels are laid out as mm. well, like the cinematic... <clears throat> yeah, the it. guy stands still. The oh, cop stands still. We're always focused on him. We're focused camera. on, yeah, as the cam brilliant, they are brilliantly put, and the car drives through him, and we see the, from the inside of the car to the back of the car, and then the car has drove away. Yeah. It is exceptionally laid out. The opening sequence is, like you say, it's very cinematic. And extremely well done with Ghost Cop taking his revenge on the drug dealers and scum of the Japanese underworld. I am going to be slightly controversial. I find Cassidy's are actually quite boring. Yes, it's technically brilliant. Yes, that scene is wonderfully done. Yes, it tells the story perfectly. It does all the things that you want it to do. It has the requisite amount of detail. But I just find it a bit boring. Everything is reduced to real in Cassidy's work. The normal everyday stuff is fine, but he reduces the fantastic to mundane, not specifically this story, because there's not a lot of fantastical elements in this one, Mm. other than the ghost cop, which he does handle exceptionally well, because he's a real guy. But Jack Kirby could draw real life with the best of them. But when he went to the negative zone, or the blue area of the moon, or apocalypse, there was a wow factor that elevated the fantasy from the reality. And there's a level of imagination at play in Kirby's work that Cassidy doesn't seem to possess. And I know, like Frank Whitley, I'm in the minority on this, but I just find his work lacks passion. Well, I'm not saying it's not good. But in a story like this, it's 
I, th- I think it makes sense for the, for the big stuff to be brought down too, to be grounded. I don't mind grounded, but I do sometimes think that if you're showing me some big super duper scientific doodad, I want to go wow. Mm. And Cass- Cassidy's art just doesn't do that for me. Well, this is, like I said, this story, I, I, I think it's better that it doesn't do that. But say Astonishing X-Men. Well, I don't think he did it in Astonishing X-Men. Exactly. Which, that would, well, your problem would be real. Yeah, when it's, I, I, you won't expect a, a Kirby level of yeah. imagination in X-Men. My only problem with Cassidy is when he uses photos. <laughs> right, and, and repeat panels. I'm not saying panels. edited photos, I mean photos. He uses a photo. Like, um, giant size Astonishing X-Men. Your first big splash page, double page spread, Spider-Man, but it's all one big photo behind him. Is it? And it's that for the entire New York sequence. So yeah, the only thing I remember about that is how fantastically well Joss Whedon wrote Spider-Man. Yeah. That was the only thing I remember. I had a big problem with Cassidy's art on X-Men. Well, see, the thing that this brought to mind is just last week when we did the Battlestar Galactica issue. Of um, with Simon's artwork, no, last week, the week before, yeah. And then last week also, I read Indestructible Hulk, which has Walt Simonson artwork in it. Mm. And you'd already flicked through it before I read it, and you were like, well, It's not bad, but it's not good. He's had read his Avengers stuff as well, which is awful. As you see, I've not read his Avengers stuff, but the, the thing I'm the point I'm making Simonson's facial expressions are much better than Cassidy's. Even with a weird mouth, yeah, that a massive at least they, the facial expressions are expressive. Cassidy's facial expressions are are non-existent, basically. I'm not saying he has one facial expression, because he doesn't. He gets the point across of everything. But he's got nowhere near the level of ability to express somebody's thought process through the face that Simonson has. Simonson's magnificent at facial expressions. Cassidy's not as good at that. Okay. That's just, you know, me. <laughs> what do I know? Um, on page 9, Elijah makes a reference to Weekly World News. Uh, WWN was a paranormal newspaper that covered stories such as The Father of My Babies from Mars. Um, there were articles that were blatantly not true. Uh, the paper had a decline in sales and went to online only, and it would also have an episode of Supernatural based on it. I, I'm pretty sure the Lone Gunman in the X-File read the Weekly World News as well. I like the Weekly World News. Because <laughs> it's just... Mad. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, as Michael said, page nine, the opening sequence took eight pages. Mm. I did like... The this th- comic took me four minutes to read, dude. Yeah, I did like the bullet making a sharp Tron turn. Yeah, I did like the bullets turning to the left. That was exceptionally well done. Our heroes are introduced to the story, and what a motley crew they are. Elijah Snow is an interesting character for what Ellis hasn't told us about him so far as to what he has. He shows the same birth date as... Jenny Sparks and Doc Savage. He's not Doc Savage in this, is he? Because they're the people who will die in the January first, nineteen ninety nine, isn't it? Yeah, eighteen ninety nine. Sorry, two thousand. Yeah, no, they're born at the beginning and die. Well, Jenny Sparks died in two thousand. Jenny Sparks died on New Year's Eve two thousand because that was an issue of authority. I presume this guy doesn't. If the book carried on being published to two thousand and seven, maybe set in the past. Or he found a loophole. I think. Uh, Yeah. He finds a loophole. Because I, I know of a spoiler. Alright, well, shut up. Yeah. Because I do plan on reading the rest of this now. Well, I planned on reading it, but doing notes for this ruined it for me. <laughs> Did it? Yeah. Alright, well, I don't want to know. Um, he's quintessentially snarky, but almost likable in himself. So he is, again, he's a Morrison character. Well, he's a Miller say, character. He's the Ellis character. Yeah, he's <laughs> the Ellis character. Um, I don't find him as disagreeable 
as they do in other cases. Because again, I think Ellis is just a better writer than the others. Um, Jaquita Wagner is the enigmatic planetary representative who for some reason dresses like Vampire Willow from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer doppelgangland. She definitely has superpowers, dude. I'm not saying she's a superhero. She definitely has superpowers. That carpet. So is this is this your loophole? They're yeah. not superheroes. Just because somebody's got super hard powers doesn't make them a superhero. Yep. Like Batman doesn't have superpowers. I could have done an issue superhero. of Batman. You could have done an issue of Batman, but then I really would have thrown her, <laughs> thrown me toys out of the pram if you'd done that. Um, and the drummer is just enigmatic and slightly irritating. Do you know who could play a good drummer? Seth Green. <laughs> Seth Green would be good as the drummer. Yeah. I think he'd be, be quite good. Uh, Planetary seems to be this super secret globe trotting group run by billionaires that go around challenging the unknown. The super, se- the super secret Scooby gang. Yes, essentially. <laughs> Archaeologists of the impossible is what Ellis refers to them as. Mm-hmm. Very little has been revealed of the organisation at this point, but we do get a little further information on page 11. Yakita, or Jakita, however you pronounce that, is surprised to learn that the Japanese representative Michelle, doesn't seem like a Japanese name, but whatever, has worked for Planetary for six years, where she doesn't know anyone who's worked for them for more than four. I like the little teasing of information that goes on. It helps that Ellis always said Planetary was finite. So unlike something like, say, Lost, we get the feeling that Ellis has all this worked out from the beginning and knows where he's going to go, which well, is good. With that being said, on page 14, what's the big hard drive thing? It might seem like it was just thrown in there yeah. to, for some big... Thing. Well, it's actually not, and will be uh, revealed. I what figured, it will, will be revealed in a later issue. I figured this would have some mm. relevance further down the line. I still don't understand the thing. What's going on there? What the naked orgy that's going on in the middle? No, of that. I'm looking. At, look at that, and you think it's a tower that's coming yeah. off the ground. But then you look at how the characters are running, mm. and then it doesn't work. No, it's like what's what's it come from? Yeah. Well, I'm sure that gets explained later on. In, uh, if it's going to come back, which I presume it is. Uh, page 17, vengeful ghost cop Shek Chaiwa exposes an interesting philosophy on death, that as somebody who is dead, he's seen that this is all that there is. There's no hell that the rapist and murderers burn in for eternity. Life is it, and that's why he's back, to remove them like a cancerous growth from life before they can do any more damage. Uh, this seemed like a very Ellis philosophy, mm. based on what little I've read of the man. But were Ellis scores over other nihilistic, let's deconstruct everything writers, is his work contains heart. You really felt for the the ghost cop yeah. at the end of this story. It was like he didn't want to do this, but there's nothing else he can do now. He's this, the spectre. Yeah, he's the spectre. He, he can't move on. Until yeah. someone else is betrayed and murdered. So he's stuck here, so he may as well make use of his time and kill bad guys. Yeah. Which is perfectly, perfectly fine think. to me, yeah. Uh, page 19 is just balls out awesome. Page 19 is brilliant. It's a full page shot of Jakita kicking a speeding car. The engine explodes out as the front fender meets Jakita's foot, and the driver, Mock, smashes through the windscreen. It's very Jeff Darrow meets Frank Miller. Yeah. I thought. It reminded me an awful lot of Miller's work on Sin City. How well must you know how, like car engines? 
I think she may, she's just aiming for the engine, dude. Well, no, I meant the, uh, the Cassidy. Oh, Cassidy must have had to do some research on what the engine of that car would look like, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe he's just, I don't know, maybe he's just made it up. <laughs> That's all made up. It, it looks like a car engine. So as long as it be, looks like yeah, it. Yeah. it doesn't have to be plausible. Um, it doesn't have to be accurate, sorry, as long as it's plausible. Yeah. yeah I, can, I can go with that. Um, pages 21 and 22 with the final conversation to uh, Y and Mock are also pretty cool and once again make you feel for the character. Yeah, you really do feel sorry for him. It's it's an exceptionally good bit that he, he says hello to Mock and you killed me and you're wondering if I could possibly hold a grudge. Let's see. I was murdered by my partner and came back as a spirit of vengeance condemned to avenge murder in Hong Kong. How happy do you think I am? Which was very funny. Mm. Very funny line of dialogue. Um, and you you do end up feeling very sorry for him at the end you people came looking for a mystery but there isn't one just us and he says at the end did he say justice? no just us mm-hmm. which as philosophies of life go is actually quite good um, I thought this was really good I actually was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoy it I've never read Planetary in its entirety and you know, like I said, I don't recall reading this. So I tore through this entire trade. Because you picked issue three. Mm. So I thought, right, well, instead of just reading issue three, I'll read the whole thing. Because then I've got a better grasp of what's going on. Because honestly, I thought I'd read it. Yeah. And put it on the shelf and forgotten about it. But you hadn't. And I hadn't. I've, I mustn't have read this because I don't remember any of it. Mm. At all. I would have had some vague memory of at least reading it. Because I've only read Authority once, but I remember it. Yeah. Because that's how good it was. Mm. It was distinctly memorable. Um, I mean, in many ways, it's rather typical turn-of-the-century cynicism, mixed with the X-Files, with a sprinkling of government conspiracy. But, you know, all those things were big in the 90s. Mm. So it's perfectly acceptable that they're here. But Ellis scores by not over-egging the pudding. Whilst I was a little concerned in earlier chapters that we were just being given a lead of extraordinary gentleman rehash, especially in the first two issues where we were treated to analogues for the Justice League and Doc Savage and Biggles and The Shadow and Tarzan and others, Ellis manages to make this series stand out by simply being Warren Ellis. On the one hand, no one does that cynical anti-superhero you're an idiot for liking this stuff quite like Ellis. There was a line in issue two where he pointedly takes the piss out of radiation causing a dinosaur island. But the solutions he offers are every bit as daft. Yeah. Well, they may have fallen in from a parallel universe or maybe they've come in from the multiverses. <laughs> Dude, that's every bit as stupid as radiation. Yeah. But because we now know what radiation does, yeah. he can take the mick out of it. Well, like, yeah, all right, fair enough. Um... And with Ellis, I never get the feeling that it's just a paycheck, which I get from other writers that are slumming in the superhero genre. Mm. They consider themselves slumming, obviously. Um, Ellis does seem to care about his work. And as I said, he has a great deal of heart. I've I've put out, though, that I think Cassidy is dull and quite overrated. But it works in this series. And I greatly enjoyed this tale of redemption and revenge. Even if the planetary crew, kind of like Mulder and Scully, don't actually do much <laughs> it's made me want to read the rest of the, the series though but again I'm going to ask you how is this not a superhero comic well because they're not superheroes <laughs> well yeah they have powers yeah. but, but not this is the edge see the authority you two are in this comic <laughs> well no the authorities Justice League yeah. whereas the planetary exists on the ground level 
of the Justice League. Investigating the Hulk and the Fantastic Four and the Spectre. Yeah. And, yeah. They're the investigators rather than the heroes themselves. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Alright, well, I'll consider doing no more superheroes again. Hmm. But I may give you a bit more time. Because you seem to really struggle finding issues for this. Every single week, Michael's been late. That uh, wasn't this week, actually. No, to be fair, this week he gave me this on Sunday, so I had four whole days. Yep. Unlike one of them. Well, you gave it me on Tuesday. And Wednesday I had to go out. Which one was that? There was one that you gave... Was it last week, week when we did 2018 and whatever? And the Axe Cop. <laughs> you gave me Axe Cop on Tuesday night. <laughs> yeah. But I was going out on Wednesday, so I had to just read it and make it up. Yeah. On Thursday when we record. Next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics, we're doing the final episode of Farewell Hellblazer. Yeah. Now, I know what you're thinking. And you're right. And you're right. But, Andrew, you did Farewell Hellblazers 1 and 2 months ago. Well, yes, this is true, lovely listener. But we had to wait until the final issues of Hellblazer had been released and the first issue of Constantine had been released. So next issue, next issue, next episode we will be covering the final three-part Hellblazer story, Cigarettes and Alcohol, no, Death and Cigarettes? Yeah. Is that what it's called? And the first issue of Constantine's New 52 book. Uh, following that, we don't want your civil wars. Yes, we're going to do civil war. We think it'll be two episodes. We think. We think, but it may end up being more or less, depending on what we think of it this time round. We hope you enjoyed No More Superhero Season. Perhaps it wasn't as diverse as maybe some people would have hoped. Sorry, Chris. Sci-fi comics. I was choosing sci-fi, and you were like, "It's not a superhero comic, really." It's not. If, if you read it on this level... Yeah, it's not a superhero comic, dude. So, uh, we hope you enjoyed it nevertheless. Mm-hmm. And we'll be back next week. Thank you for joining us. We're glad that you do join us. And thank you for emailing in and all that, Clubbins. Mm-hmm. See you next week. Bye-bye. Good. sound clips used in the show are for illustrative and review purposes only and no infringement is intended. Andrew and Michael make no money from the production of this show which is a source of much consternation. New episodes drop every Thursday over at 2TrueFreaks.Libson.com 
which is spelt L-I-V-S-Y-N. Old episodes of the show are also archived on the Two True Freaks internet radio feed at twotruefreaks.lipson.com. If you wish to communicate with Michael or Andrew or any of the things they have discussed about on the show, you can email them at heykidscomics, all one word, at virginmedia.com. If you wish to view the covers of the comics we've talked about this week, we have a website, www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you are so inclined but don't actually want to drop us an email but just wish to ask us a quick question or say hi, you can Facebook friend us. We're using Hey Kids, all one word, as the first name, and comics as the surname. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Would you listen to this sexist drivel? <laughs> 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 